You're listening to the Inside Out Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production and powered by Midwest Sports. The purpose of this series is to determine the best American male tennis player at any given point in the open era. To signify which American male sat on top of the American men's tennis world, we award them the hypothetical championship belt. Here's the criteria I used in judging each of these players. Grand Slam titles, year-end rankings, popularity amongst fans, Davis Cup success, success on the American Junior Tour, and last but not least, head-to-head records. The belt's transition from Arthur Ashe to Jimmy Connors was clear-cut. Connors won the slams, he reached number one in the world, he climbed all of the hurdles you need to do to be considered the face of American men's tennis. Conversely, the transition of the belt from Connors to John McEnroe was a bit murkier. Part 3, You Can't Be Serious, The John McEnroe Only Era. Connors McEnroe rivalry persisted over two decades, drawn out by the longevity of both of their careers. And while Connors remained quite relevant throughout the 1980s, eventually his successes paled in comparison to that of his biggest rival. His drop off, plus an unexpected dip in American prospects, led the 1980s to belong to one man. His name, John Patrick McEnroe. In 1977, he arrived at Wimbledon a qualifier at just 18 and advanced all the way to the semifinals. As a freshman at Stanford 10 months later, he won the national singles title. But it was the way he won it in an orderly, gentlemanly fashion that was so remarkable. After all, the NCAA doesn't employ linesmen, leaving it up to the players to determine whether a ball is in or out. In years to come, this same player would rage and burn across the face of tennis, changing it, some say scarring it, forever. From April 1979 to June 1986, McEnroe was always ranked in the top three in singles. Additionally, he held the number one world ranking in doubles eight separate times during the decade, including for a record 100 weeks in a row from April of 1979 to March of 1981. McEnroe won both the U.S. Open men's singles titles and doubles titles in 1979 and 1981. He also helped revive U.S. interest in the Davis Cup, becoming the first top male player to play for the U.S. routinely since Arthur Ashe. In the United States... He resurrected the Davis Cup. He was dead when he came onto the scene. I mean, Connors had snubbed it. He hated Davis Cup. And there were no other big names, really, that captured the public's fancy. They've turned down the honor of playing for the United States. They've turned down the Davis Cup, not McEnroe. He, he's proud of that thing. And, and that I love, loyalty. First of all to the family, second to the country. 
He helped the team win four titles in five years from 1978 to 1982 and set numerous records during his career, including years played, most ties played, singles wins, and total wins in both singles and doubles in U.S. Men's Davis Cup history. McEnroe's talent on the court could not be denied, and with Jimmy Connors entering his 30s, American tennis fans quickly realized that the era of John McEnroe was upon them. He ended the year ranked number one in singles from 1981 all the way through 1984 and number one in doubles from 1979 all the way through the 1983 season. His self-absorption, monumental temper, and sheer love of the spotlight could be reason enough to characterize him as the antithesis of a team player. How could McEnroe complement another's game? How could he sacrifice himself for the good of the whole? Well, the emphatic answer is not just in his Davis Cup participation, but in his brilliant doubles record, 78 men's and mixed titles, including 10 Grand Slams. And though McEnroe had achieved much success early in his career, his unparalleled 1984 season was the year that he truly distinguished himself from his contemporaries. McEnroe's 1984 season remains pure tennis nirvana. In 84, I'm not so sure that there was ever any player, Laver, Tilton, or anybody else, who was as good as McEnroe that particular year. He was just absolutely brilliant. That was him at the height of his powers. 1984, McEnroe's grand opus. Which ended- his season started with a 42-match win streak and ended at an unprecedented 82-3 overall record. Though soiled by a five-set loss in the final, he reached his first and only French Open singles final and would go on to win two other singles slam as well as a double slam that season. He also did not lose to an American player all season long, beating rivals Jimmy Connors five times, Vitas Girolaitis three times, Peter Fleming twice, and Scott Davis, Brad Gilbert, and Van Winitsky all once. And despite a stinging loss in the Davis Cup final to Sweden's Henrik Sundström, McEnroe finished the year with 13 titles in all. He would put a stamp on his season by getting revenge over Lendl in the 1984 U.S. Open Finals. McEnroe prevailed over Connors, then avenged his French Open loss to Lendl by winning his seventh and final Grand Slam singles title. Names like Scott Davis, Billy Martin, and Van Winitsky may be familiar only to the most hardcore of American men's tennis fans, but they were all at the forefront of a generation of American men that failed to live up to their predecessors' achievements. From 1985 to 1988, no American man won a singles Grand Slam title, at the time the longest stretch of the Open era. Davis, who won the 1979 U.S. Open Boys singles title, did reach a career high of number 11 in singles and number 2 in doubles, but he did not advance past the quarters of a major until 1991, when he won the Australian Open men's doubles title. Winitsky, a two-time Junior Slam champion himself, peaked at number 35 in the singles rankings and number 7 in doubles. He made one Slam final in his career, losing to the McEnroe-Fleming duo at the 1983 U.S. Open. 
players like Rick Leach, Ken Flack, and Robert Seguso won double slams and also reached number one in the doubles rankings. However, they likely never captured the attention of fans the way McEnroe could. Two years later, he took a six and a half month sabbatical from the tour. He dropped off a cliff. I mean, it was over. He took a, he took a break from the game. He lost basically all conviction. His game was never the same. He pulled a hamstring in the fall of 84, and I just don't think rehab did properly. His game was so built around quickness, and I think when he lost that half a step, people didn't quite understand how big an impact that had on his game. And even when McEnroe's performance began harshly declining after 1985, it is likely that American fans still treated him as the face of American men's tennis. Why do I think fans neglected the successes of American doubles players? My example for this would be to cite the lack of coverage the Bryan brothers have received. Yes, they are considered two of the greatest doubles players in history, and have each won more grand slams than any other American man in history. Yet they have never really received attention equal to their contemporary Andy Roddick, or even John Isner, despite having the more successful results. It's also worth looking at John McEnroe's head-to-head record for some of his fellow American male contemporaries of this time. Against each and every one of them, he carries a winning record that signifies that he was the American male to beat. Let's start with Vitas Girulaitis, who failed to beat McEnroe after the 1980 season and carries a career record of 3-11 and against the fellow American. McEnroe also held a 9-3 record against Elliot Teltscher, 8-1 record against Kevin Curran, 12-5 record against fellow Grand Slam champion Johan Creek, 5-0 against Jimmy Aris, 5-2 against Tim Mayotte, 13-1 against Brad Gilbert, and 5-0 against Aaron Crickstein. Even as the generation started to get slightly younger, McEnroe still held his edge early on. He went 3-0 against Jay Berger, 6-2 against Paul Anacone, 4-1 against Scott Davis, and earned both of his two career wins against Andre Agassi before the start of the 1990s. Thus, even though McEnroe's performance did decline after 1985, his success against fellow American male players, along with his popularity amongst American tennis fans, likely remained greater than any other player throughout the rest of the 1980s. In fact, McEnroe's second career as a broadcaster, American tennis mentor, and celebrity entertainer are a testament to the popularity he achieved while playing tennis. Answer my question. The question, jerk. That ball was on the line. And of course, you cannot be serious, are just a few of the many choice phrases McEnroe yelled at chair umpires over the years. You have an overall No mistakes whatsoever. Answer my question! The question, jerk! I have purposefully chosen to exclude the many expletives he also used. But rest assured, his arsenal of swear words was equal parts extensive 
and versatile. In fact, he racked up $69,500 in fines during his career. In the 80s, that translates to a load of money. Despite all of his successes, he was kicked off the Davis Cup team indefinitely after his loss to Sweden in 1984 and was suspended from competition for two months in 1987. Nevertheless, McEnroe managed to leverage his on- and off-court notoriety to launch a highly successful post-tennis career. He has worked closely with many philanthropic enterprises over the years, most notably the City Parks Foundation in New York. This isn't just about, okay, so you can become a professional tennis player. Most of the kids, 99% of them, here or anywhere aren't going to become professionals. So you've got to sort of set them up for life in a way. And if you can do that by, you know, getting them out of a situation that is a difficult one to putting them into one where they have something to look forward to and go to. And because of that, they got into an Ivy League school. They got into Stanford, even if it wasn't a scholarship, or they got into a place where they got a full scholarship. That's, I, we've had dozens of those already. Many, many uh, kids have ha that has happened to. And I consider that a success. And though he has mostly avoided public coaching roles, McEnroe served as U.S. Davis Cup captain from 1999 to 2000, briefly served in Milos Raonic's coaching box, and has opened the McEnroe Academy in New York. He also works as a broadcaster for the various sports networks during Grand Slam events and has performed multiple cameos in hit movies such as You Don't Mess With the Zohan and Mr. Deeds and comedic shows like Saturday Night Live and 30 Rock. What kind of driving is that? You're a disgrace! No, sir. You're a disgrace. Johnny <laughs> McEnroe. Oh, look at DJ hanging out with McEnroe. That's awesome. <laughs> You can also count at least once a year to see McEnroe create some sort of scene courtside at a New York Knicks game. Simply put, he is more than just a tennis star. McEnroe became an American cultural icon. And as such, it would require immense talent to take the belt away from him. Luckily for American tennis fans, the most highly touted and exceptionally talented group of juniors in American men's tennis history lurk just on the horizon. Shout out to Blue Claw Music and Thomas Ackley for their song, America the Beautiful Hip Hop Track Remix, which you have heard used throughout this belt series. To find more of their work, please go check out their stuff on YouTube. Also have to give a huge shout out to both ESPN Films and Graham Benzinger for the clips we used in today's podcast. They help add that extra depth that make these episodes oh so pleasant. Of course, shout out to super producer Daniel Westoff as well the man behind the scenes who make these episodes possible that will do it for part three of this series on our next episode of the belt we get into the real fun and you know following in the footsteps of McEnroe and Connors is no easy task in fact it took over a decade for a worthy successor for the belt to emerge luckily 
for fans of American men's tennis, Ash, Connors, McEnroe, soon became relics of the past as our golden generation of players, Sampras, Agassi, Chang, and Courier, were finally ready to carry the mantle and push American tennis to uncharted heights. That story on our next episode of The Belt. The Belt.